Uh, my name is Blair. Uh, we're closing out a series here called Hidden Treasures. If you've been following along that you know that kind of in the middle of that series, we changed direction on that. And I, I told you that we would come back to this. A lot of people would come and saying, I can't believe you're not going to talk about Noah. I can't believe you're not. Well, we will. Uh, we're going to save that till May and June. So if you, if you want to um, stick around for that, that's great. But next week, we're starting another series. We're going to go back to the New Testament. We've got some stuff that we want to look at there that's going to challenge us a little bit. Then we're going to roll into Easter, and there's some things that we're going to do that I think are going to be exciting from the Passover meal to a triclinium on the stage, all kinds of things like that. And so I think there's um, a lot of good stuff that will be in between those two seasons. But this morning, we're going to finish this up. I said last week that there were similarities between the story of Adam and Eve and Cain. Now, we spent all of last week looking at two things that weren't the same But this morning, I want to take you and show you the similarities, and there's a reason for this. It's really tempting when we read it, the way we read, is that we think there's a story in chapter 3 of Genesis, and there just happens to be a story in chapter 4 of Genesis, and they're just telling different things. But if you understand that there's a link, that there's an intentional, purposeful link, that it's telling a much bigger story inside those individual stories... There's some power there, and that's what I want to try to do this morning. Um, there will be some moments where you might think to yourself, it feels like he's moving very fast right now. And that's because we have communion at the end of this, and so we're going to move really fast. We're going to move fast through the linkage because the linkage just helps you understand the overall story and the point that we want to kind of make at the end of that. So we're going to go quickly through each of the links. And here's the thing. Here's the problem. So I started where I was planning to talk to you about four of them that were just big and really easy to see. And as I was in the planning process, I ran across two more. And this morning, I found one more as I was digesting this. And I was like, I don't know where this ends. I, um, I can't like give them all to you. But here's what I would tell you. I think you ought to go spend some time in three and four and see how much linkage there is because there's a ton. More than I think I'm going to give to you this morning. But I want to give you some evidence that we should be looking at the whole story that's being told with these two, not just the parts and pieces that are in each side of the stories. So let's get started. I'm going to, let's go. Uh, Genesis 3.9 is the first one that I want to talk to you about. It says, where are you? The Lord asked Adam and Eve, where are you? In Genesis 4-9, he says, where is your brother Abel? In both stories, God asked the question where, and maybe that would be enough of a link, but it's even stronger than that. Because in the Hebrew, there's two words for where. One is the common word that you and I would understand it to be, and it's found all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It is, what's the location of this? And so whenever you see where, it's most likely that. But there's a different word in the Hebrew that expresses a different kind of where, ayah. And it, it, is, um, it would be translated where, but it doesn't tell you enough of the story. When you see that word, it's asking, why isn't this thing that's supposed to be where it is Why isn't it there anymore? So in our story, if this is happening with Adam and Eve, he would be saying, why aren't you walking with me in the garden where you belong? Why isn't Cain 
in the field where he belonged. He's not asking a question of location. He's asking a rhetorical question that somebody should be able to answer as to why I'm not where I should be. And here's what's interesting. In both of those wares that you see in three and four, it's the more rarely used version of where, both of them. And so it's not just that God asked the question where. He asks a rare kind of question in the process of that. Again, showing a link. Where are you? Why aren't you where you should be? That's the first one. Okay, there's more. In Genesis 3, 14 and 17, God clearly communicates that Adam and Eve are going to face something that is a curse. However it's defined, however they're going to feel that, there is something that is set against them in their life. And in Genesis 4:11, God says this directly to Cain. Now you are under a curse. This is not like in the movies where somebody says, I curse you, and you go, ooh. This is about to get specific. And I want to read you how specific it gets. For both of them, there's a couple curses that are similar. They're very, very similar. Okay, the first one is found in Genesis 3, 17, 18, and 19. This is for Adam and Eve. And this is what it said. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. In verse 18, it's going to produce thorns and thistles for you, which is not great news in a culture that hasn't invented gloves yet. You're going to have to work through thistles and thorns. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. And the curse becomes about farming. Your farming, your way of making a living, your way of feeding yourself, just got difficult. This is going to be tough for you now. Now, um, this continues with Cain, except in verse um, 12 of chapter 4, it says this. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. So the curse is still about what's going to happen with that ground, how hard, how difficult it's going to be. And so both of them are facing a curse that has to do with how they're going to provide how they're going to work, how they're going to do this sort of thing. Okay, there's a second curse that they share too. And it starts similarly as well. So there's the similar curse and it starts the same. In um, chapter 3, verse 24, it says this. After he, God, drove the man out. Um, that idea of drove is not some passive thing that God's doing. He's actively removing them from the garden. I don't know how it happened. I don't know what took place. But it is not some passive action. God is active in moving them out of the garden. But this is what it says to Cain. This is in Cain, um, verse 11 of chapter 4. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground. Both of them are facing being driven. God is intentionally doing something that's moving them from one place to another. Now, specifically, what are they being driven? What is that attached to? Well, in verse 23 of Genesis 3, it says, So the Lord banished him, this is Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden. So the place that they called home, they're now banished from. And in chapter 4, verse 12 it says after you're going to work the ground, it won't yield its crops, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Both of these guys are facing exile. Adam's facing exile. 
hurricanes facing exile. What they called home is no longer there. What they found as a place of comfort is now excluded from them. And so both of them are driven from what they've known into a place of exile. And both of them share that in the story as well. Now there's a few other things that are shared as well. They're, they seem smaller, but I don't think any of them are insignificant. So for instance, in chapter 3, verse 10, Adam and Eve have taken from the fruit and God says, where are you? Why aren't you with me where you should be? And they say, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. There's hiding. And they chose it. They chose to go and hide. It doesn't appear like that's part of the story for Cain. He kills his brother. God comes and asks him, where is Abel? And he says, I'm not my brother's keeper. How do I know? It doesn't appear like he's hiding at all. But wait, what gets said in verse 14? He says, uh, today you're driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. There is hiding in both stories as well. They happen at different places. By the way, you're going to find later in verse 16 that Cain chooses to hide. He chooses to go away from God, just like Adam and Eve did. And so you have a linkage there. You have this link that this idea of hiding is something that they're purposefully choosing on their own. And then there's another one. It's, it's a small little thing, um, but I find it interesting, so I want, I want you to see it. Um, in verse 24, that God drove them out of the garden. He placed them on the east side of the garden, a cherub with a flaming sword. So on the east side of the garden... He had to place a guard. Why? Well, apparently they did not go far. There was a risk that they might try to sneak back in, to try to get back in where they were asked not to go because they've proven themselves to be disobedient, unwilling to listen to God at times. And so we know that Adam and Eve are placed to the east of the garden. Doesn't seem like it's far away. But look at what happens with Cain. This is verse 16. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So he's also living east of Eden. We said the directions are important. We're going to eventually see that as we um, take this further on. But we have the same pattern. There's so many different linkages here. And so you start looking at this, and I suspect there are more. I suspect there are a lot more that I haven't found that have to do with attitudes, that have to do with... Um, different ways of thinking about things. And I, I think I'm going to go and spend some time looking for more because I've, I've found uh, that they really color the story. Why? Well, let's just start looking at these comparisons because here's what's interesting. They're similar and they're different. Uh, I want to point out some of the differences even though they're similar. We find that with Adam and Eve... They lived to the east of the Garden of Eden. But we're told that Cain is a wanderer who goes east. He goes far. We don't know how far he goes. We don't have any idea. But we know he's not hanging around home. And we're going to find out why in a little while. But he is, he's way east. So one's east. One's much further east. The second one, when God says, where are you, to Adam and Eve, 
They're in a place where they have temporarily hidden themselves from God. But when he says, where is Cain? Cain is permanently gone. He's not coming back. He's not where he should be because he's been removed from the story completely. And so even though it's the same kind of question, it's really different what God is inquiring about. One is driven from the garden. The other one, did you see what he was driven from? The ground. He's driven from this thing that he's been getting his livelihood from, and so he's driven, he's driven from that. The, the farming becomes difficult for Adam and Eve. Sweat of the brow, toil, all of that sort of thing. But did you see what happened with Cain? You can try, but nothing is going to grow. Your farming attempts are going to be futile. It's going to be a waste of your time. Now, if you're thinking, well, what does that mean? Does, does God follow Cain around in every patch of soil that Cain digs up? God turns to salt? No, we're kind of given a clue here. Something happens in Cain's life that turns him into a wanderer. Can a wanderer plant in a grove of olive trees and walk off and never care for it and expect it to grow? No, that's not how it works. If you're a farmer, you have to tend that constantly. But something has changed in Cain's life where that's no longer possible. And so the very idea that he would even be able to farm is gone to him. So yeah, farming is part of the curse. But for him, it's futile. Adam and Eve face exile from the garden. But it appears that they could put down roots. They could still build a home. They could still have a place where they gave them comfort and safety. Not Cain. Cain turns into this nomad who just goes anywhere and everywhere. No home, no safety, no security, always on the move. Now, just in case you've been reading along in the text and you've been reading through chapter 4 and trying to digest it, you might think to yourself, Cain beat the system. He knew what God was doing that gave him consequences, and he was able to overcome it. Because look at what it says in verse 16. It says, so Cain went out from the Lord's presence. There it is, his choice to go out from the Lord's presence. And he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It looks like he's planted roots, because the next verse says he has a kid. And then it says this in verse 17. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. So when you see that, it's tempting to think, oh, look, he was facing exile. He was facing a difficult life. But Cain overcame all of this until, until you start understanding what's actually said here. Do you know what the word nod means in the Hebrew language? Wandering. Cain went to the land of wandering. And rabbis are quick to point out that the way it's written that he was then building a city is written in a permanent present tense. He was always trying to build a city, but he never accomplished it. He, it's what he wanted, it's what he worked on, it's what he gave his effort to, but it was never completed, not, not ever in his lifetime. 
And so the thing that you think maybe he got away with it, he did not. The scripture indicates kind of the opposite of that, that he went out into a land where he wandered, and it was rough. Now here's, um, I don't know if you've noticed this or not. I suspect maybe you have. But there's a little bit of a difference between the outcome of the Adam and Eve story and the Cain story. Adam and Eve were making a choice to elevate their desire above God. And so they paid for it personally, but it seems like they were still able to maintain some sort of connection with God. Like they stayed close. They were open to coming out from where they were hiding. All of that sort of thing. But for Cain, something else was going on in his life. And so the consequences of his choice were worse every time. It wasn't just that you're going to have trouble farming. You're not going to be able to farm. It's not just that you're in exile now. You're going to be an eternal wanderer. It's not just these small things that happened. It's not just that you went east. You went far east. It's not just that you're hidden. Did you catch what he said? He said he would be permanently hidden from God's presence. In his mind, it's done. The relationship is over. It's behind him. So you have these extremes that are happening over and over again, and it's worse. And by the way, this registers with Cain. Cain says this in verse 13 of chapter 4. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. He goes on in the next verse to say, I'm hidden permanently from you. And, and then he gets this part right. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And then God has never said anything about this. But he says, and whoever finds me will kill me. Where did that come from? Has God instructed anybody to kill him? Why do you think this is a fear that Cain has that he's expressing right now? See, at this point, in the story, there are, there are no courts. There's no system set up to handle injustice. And if you went and killed somebody, in, in a group of people's minds, you could justify that the price you should pay is that you should die yourself. And until there was a system set up, you would be afraid that somebody would come along and exert justice for you. He was obviously afraid enough of his family that he became a wanderer who would walk around and not settle in one. It's almost like a terrorist who realizes, I cannot stay the night too often in one place because if somebody knows where I'm at, they'll show up and take me down. So I have to keep moving. And Cain becomes a wanderer. And for him, he says, this is too much for me to bear. Here's what's fascinating. I just love this about God. So Cain feels this way, even though God has not made it part of the story. So look at what God says in verse 15. Not so. Anyone who kills, Cain's, who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Which, I mean, if you think about this for a little bit, if somebody goes and kills Cain, are they going to get killed seven times worse? I mean, what's that going to look like? Um, most rabbis have understood this to mean 
that God looked at Cain and said, I'm going to give you seven generations of safety. Like, you're going to be okay for seven generations. And then after that, I'm removing my hand from you. And there's some evidence in the scripture that after seven generations, a man named Lamech is the one who takes Cain's life. And so we have, we have some of this in here. But this is what the Lord says. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Cain's heart is set against God. And God is still showing him love. Still showing him protection. Still leaving the door open for Cain to change his heart and to move back towards him. It's not a choice that Cain makes. It's not something that he appears to want. But it's not because God's heart was hardened towards Cain. Cain has earned some dire consequences. But one of them was not his life being taken. And God stepped up and said, listen, there's no no need to live with this fear. I'm going to take that off the table for you. So if, if his fear of death is off the table for him, why do you think Cain feels like this is too much to bear? Why is there too much to bear here? This has to do with the whole way Cain has lived his life. If you'll remember, three weeks ago, we said Cain was given a name by Eve. He acquires. What has Cain been acquiring his whole life? Land. It's how he he grows fruit. It's what he needs for him to accomplish his goals and his vision. Did you notice how many of the curses that Cain faced had to do with land? Why? Well, here's what's happening. See, in the story with Adam and Eve... They had decided to elevate their own desires above God's word. And they they wanted something for themselves. But Cain has taken it to a new level. For Cain, he has decided to build a kingdom for himself. He's going to acquire as much as he can. He's going to build as much as he can. And he needs this God, who's a tool of his, to get busy and help him grow stuff so that he can amass the kingdom that he has in mind. Because he's building this kingdom that doesn't have any concern about God. And we know that because when he went and he sacrificed to God, his heart was not in it. There was nothing good in his heart when he made his sacrifice. I'm just trying to get this God to keep doing what he has to do so that I can build the kingdom that I want. And Cain becomes a kingdom builder for himself. And God says... I can't let that happen. See, Cain put his value, his purpose, his meaning into that kingdom that he was building. And when that kingdom went away, when he realized that I might not be able to have that thing that gives me meaning, value, and purpose, that's too much for me to bear. I can't believe you're taking this away from me, God. God was actually trying to get his attention. It was another opportunity for Cain to bring his heart back to God. 
You see God acting gently with him by taking away the threat of death. And not once in this section of scripture do you see Cain returning and desiring a deeper connection with God. All he's concerned about is what he's losing. Look at what I'm losing. I'm losing all of this land. I'm losing how I make a living. I'm losing my worth. I'm losing my value. I'm losing it all. Uh, you know what's interesting to me? The issue that's getting addressed right here in Genesis chapter 4 is still active in our world today. I hear it all the time. I don't know if you have or not, but I'm going to ask you a question and see if you've heard this before. Why do you have a desire if you're not supposed to act on it? I mean, I, in Adam and Eve's story, they were looked at and said, this is what animals do. You have a desire, act on your desire. It's not that hard. And I, honestly, I hear that in our culture these days. But I've heard the other side because Cain takes it a bit further. Cain looks at what he desires and says, I don't just want to do this because I desire it. I want this because it gives me meaning, purpose, and value. And I hear people even saying this. Why would God give you a desire in your life and then put a boundary up that holds you from doing that? That sounds like a cruel God. He's withholding your value. He's withholding your purpose. He's withholding real meaning that you could find because there's obviously a drive in you that he put there. So why is he messing with you? And the story of Cain is why. The story of Cain is that when you decide to elevate your desires for your kingdom above your devotion for God, you start to give that thing that you desire your dedication and devotion. It gets a sense of your purpose and meaning, and it was never built to hold that. It will break under the weight of that. The only thing, the only thing that can carry your purpose, meaning, who you are, the essence of it, is God Almighty himself, who if you had him above your desires, could actually give meaning and purpose and shape to those things. But out of order, out of order, look at what happens. In an attempt to find his meaning, his purpose, and his value, Cain enters a wasteland. And I want to tell you, this is what happens with our lives today. I've watched this with so many people. In our culture, people have put value in their money. They find their purpose and their meaning in acquiring it. It becomes their, it becomes their driving focus. And in the process of that, they begin to find their value, their meaning, and their purpose in that financial thing. And when it starts to crumble, when there's difficulty, or maybe not. I've watched people just keep acquiring them more and more. And you know what it does? It generates a fear in them that what if I lose that? I've got to protect this. There are people who will try to take this from me. And there's all kinds of stuff that happens when it holds your purpose and value. It, it can't. It will break. And you will break because God is the only one 
who can tell you that you have value, purpose, and meaning. And if you get it from that other source, it will destroy you. It will put you in a wasteland. This is happening with sex in our world. If you, if you listen at all, you will be told in our culture, if you have a desire, go and fill it. And pretty soon, that elevates to a place where you do what you want to do when you want to do it, and people find their value in that. They find purpose in that, and it holds nothing. And they walk off into a wasteland, sometimes of addiction, sometimes of all kinds of problems. You want, you want to know the truth? They do surveys on this every year, and every year it's the same. You know who has the highest level satisfaction in this area of their lives? Long-term married couples who are in monogamous relationships. Every year, self-reporting. People are self-reporting this. And the ones who show the least satisfaction? <laughs> the people in our culture who said, if you feel like it, do it. Chase it, grab it, take it. I want, you to, I want to, um, you to get this. I'm going to read it just to make sure I get it right. I want you to catch this truth that's found in the life of Cain. Our drives can direct us away from satisfaction in the name of satisfaction. Our drives can direct us away from satisfaction in the name of satisfaction. We're convinced that this thing will give me the purpose and meaning and value that we need. And it's a long list. Power, career, fame, achievement. I, want, I just want to do well. Family. See, anything that holds your value above a devotion that you have to God can turn into a wasteland for you. As you go about building a kingdom, God wants you to think. He wants you to be aware that what you think gives satisfaction could end up taking you away from the very thing that you long for in life. And the only place that you'll find that is in God himself. And Cain permanently cut himself off from that and walked away. And any hope that he would not live in a wasteland was gone. What he desired, what he hoped for, was now worthless to him. I just want to give you the warning. It is no different today for you and I. It's why I'm excited this morning to serve communion, to give you a chance to reflect on where your devotion lies. Because there are all kinds of kingdoms that we build. There's all kinds of things that they're good. By the way, family, all of those things that I listed, they're not inherently wrong. They're just out of order. When you get them out of order is where the problem happens. And if you had a devotion to God that was at the pinnacle of your life, God would use those other drives in incredible ways to move you, to do stuff in the world, to partner with him. But you got to get the devotion right first. And this morning, 
We're going to give you a chance to think about that. Every time we've served communion, we ask you to maybe consider a different part or be focused on something in the process of this. And this morning, this is, this is your assignment. I want you to consider whether God has, given, has been given your highest devotion or not. Is there anything else that's stealing that? And if it is, maybe this morning is the time for you to deal with that. If you're involved with communion, if you would be willing to come up um, here now, that would be great. Uh, Jesus, when he was with his disciples, he's, he's training a group of guys who are going to be the church after he leaves. And he's trying to help them understand the sacrifice that he's about to make. And in a Passover meal, he takes some bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And the picture he was trying to give them was the price that he was willing to pay so that their devotion like I, see, I believe that God was already worthy of devotion before this happened. But what do you say after this? What do you say after he offers up his life as a sacrifice for our wrongdoing? Does he not deserve the top spot? And he was looking at his disciples and saying, listen, doing this for you, what I'm about to face I'm going to be broken. And then he took a cup. He said, this is my blood. It's going to be poured out for you. And out of my deep love and devotion for you, I'm just asking that you consider that you give it back to me. That you don't build a kingdom it's bigger, more important than I am. So this morning, I'm going to serve those who are helping. I'm going to serve the band, and I'm going to let you sit quietly for a little bit. And I hope you'll think, am I giving God my full devotion? Is there anything that I'm building right now that's taking away from my devotion to him? And I hope as you come, and you take communion, that you'll deal with God in this moment and you'll get things right. By the way, when we serve communion, you'll walk up to somebody who's holding the bread, they'll offer it to you and say, the body of Christ broken for you, you'll pull a piece off, you'll step to the next person who has a cup, you'll dip that bread in the cup, they'll say the blood of Christ shed for you and then you can take that, you can make your way back to your seat where you can pray, where you can think, you can listen to the band worshiping, but at some point, they'll ask you to stand and worship with them together. And, um, and I'll let you know when you can join us here. For Let me serve these guys first. Body of Christ, bro.
If you need a gluten-free option, uh, Tracy will have that on this side, um, close to the stairs over here. Otherwise, we have a station under each screen. Uh, as they start to play, I ask that you would join and come forward and join us for communion.